I've also realized I'm not. I'm now all in on Zach Taylor. I also realized you just call him Coach Taylor, and then once you think that it's you know Kyle <laughs> Chandler doing it, it all makes so much more sense. stop shop for news views and overreactions to all things nfl the super bowl is finally upon us and it's with great sadness that we now have a whole year to wait till the next pro bowl <laughs> so hey guys we got connor here we've got ronan hello and we got sean hello how are we getting on lads how are we in i believe cork and athlone at this point yeah up here for a week hopefully the bathroom is being redone in our house as a bomb site so Take the cat somewhere where she wouldn't be freaked out and home <laughs> seemed like a good place to go. I'm very much reliant on this specialist bathroom company with their own showroom and everything. And they really sold us on the idea that they're not ordinary builders who will just fuck off money and come back four weeks later. So I'm really <laughs> reliant. I'm really committed to it's kind of like my reputation's on the line here if these guys end up being standard cowboys. Hopefully. Our guy was good, but he works up in Dublin, so he wasn't probably going to go down to Cork for a single job. <laughs> <laughs> How about yourself, Fitz? How's Cork going for you? Pretty quiet down here at work, writing a manual, so that's fun. But other than that, yeah, we were uh, watching the Six Nations, me and Sean with uh, good friend Marcus at the weekend there, and a good result there, but uh, the big yeah. test coming this weekend. Yeah, I was going to say it was, good. it was quite good matches. I was down at my nephew's second birthday party. His grandparents were over from England, so we were kind of enjoying both the results. <laughs> It was uh, very enjoyable. Yeah. The pub cheered louder for Scotland's win than for Ireland's win. I think. <laughs> it was a real kind of... To be fair, though, the Ireland win was very one-sided. I think by the end of it, yeah, the wind yeah, was yeah. out of everyone's sails on that one. No, it was a good, good start. And as you say, the big one now this week upcoming. We'll fly in and start moving through some of the news because, you know, for, for, for essentially the off-season now the Pro Bowl's gone, there's been a lot of news happening. Breaking, I think, just after we recorded last week was the news that former Miami head coach Marion Flores has filed a class action lawsuit against the NFL with specific allegations against Miami, the Giants and Denver regarding racist hiring practices. He sued, cites several instances relating to Flores and the hiring process, people just holding fake interviews to get a around race requirements for interview processes. New York Giants in particular interviewed Flores despite having already hired Brian Dayball based on texts that Belichick has <laughs> had sent that came to light. It wouldn't be like Belichick to throw that team that defeated him in two Super Bowls under the bus in any way, shape or form. And then there was also ones with John Elway where they reckon that Fangio has already been hired as well. Miami owner Stephen Ross is also now within this lawsuit alleged to have offered Flores $100,000 a game for every game that he lost two years ago in that attempt when they were looking to tank and actually won a couple of ones and also attempted to get him to tamper with a potential quarterback which to be honest reading between the lines it sounds very much like it was Tom Brady because they were talking about meeting on a boat down in Miami I believe and it also cites unfair treatment of other coaches obviously the NFL have come out and denied this the teams are denying all charges yeah it's been messy we kind of looked at it and went like well dead this is kind of what we imagined was happening the Rudy rule hasn't resulted in much there's now post new hirings three black head coaches in the league which is very underrepresentative of the number of players and those involved in the sport this is a very brave move from Flores as you know he's just coming off a, his, his head coaching gig he did a pretty good job it was kind of surprising that he was fired but this is obviously going to have a knock-on impact for his ability to get hired as he was one of the finalists for the Houston job as well as we'll talk about later on but overall I think a lot of the reaction to this has just been yeah this sounds about right like the NFL <laughs> talks a big game but is definitely more concerned about looking like it cares about racism than stopping racism 
Yeah, this comes across as very bad, but are we honestly, any of us, even surprised just a little bit? I mean, the racist backbone to the NFL is kind of a well-established trope that kind of manifests itself every once in a while in various different things. And the fact that they had to bring in this rule in the first place, the Rooney rule, kind of demonstrates that there was a racist culture. And it, it obviously hasn't done much that the standard human thing of trying to find the workaround, trying to find the loophole to get around it. And it wasn't for Belichick. And it wasn't, ac- I will defend Bill Belichick, it was an accident. It's, it's like seeing the name Brian or something and was texting Flores to congratulate him. Yeah. And then was found out. the wrong actually, Brian, you know, apparently. Yeah, then it found out it was actually the other guy. That's how it came out. Yeah, it's just another nail in the NFL's we are not racist coffin. I mean, the real question is what comes out of this and how they try and fix this. I mean, the NFL, as you said, are very good at demonstrating contrition or making the, the good statements. But I mean, this requires significant cultural changes, which the NFL front office has not demonstrated to date and, and has shown no compunction to do so. So you'd wonder how much will change. And for Flores himself, I mean, I would think he's maybe thrown his career under a bus here. Given the history of NFL owners and their demographics, this could be seen as he's now a troublemaker, he's a guy untouchable, and it could be a long time before we see him again. I think the, the specific allegations made, it's kind of unusual, because like the two ones that are kind of specifically around kind of trying to work around the Rooney rule, you have to have two interviews for any important position now, it used to be one. The the New York Giants one, like the evidence is pretty damning from a, from a public perspective, but in terms of like a legal perspective, I'm not sure if it's kind of watertight enough to kind of, you know, get the Giants down to rights. And then for Denver, like John Elway showing up a bit drunk, he obviously claimed afterwards, oh, I was just coming off like a red-eye flight and interviewing other people, you know, I just, it's very difficult and obviously I wasn't uh, not taking this seriously. It's just uh, being an executive is hard, basically. What's interesting is that like obviously the one that Brian Flores would have the most experience with, with Miami is that Steve even Ross, I'm not even sure if the the accusations against him are racism rather than just like outright corruption. Like yeah. basically <laughs> paying a coach to lose games is corrupt and would obviously have huge implications, particularly now, of course. Yeah, um, with the introduction of the gambling partners and stuff like that. If you have owners not kind of keeping up the competitive spirit of the game what's that's messy exactly and then tampering with with players we know that's a big no-no in the league so if anything comes out of those though there could be significant consequences for steven and like look when you go through all of the additional details he goes into like the unfair treatment of people like caldwell and wilkes and other coaches in the past there's definitely a lot of what you call circumstantial evidence that the nfl has been acting in in a racist manner but just in terms of like a a legal obviously it's a civil suit so it's it's kind of more 50 50 than beyond reasonable doubt but I still do think with all the resources these teams and the NFL has that it will be a, a difficult one. And Flores, obviously, you know, he's doing this to kind of highlight it. And, and I think, you know, this will probably prompt some changes by the NFL, whether they're significant enough is a different question. But yeah, he's probably put a, a target on his back and it's going to be difficult for him to get a job in the, at least in the, in the near future. Yeah, this is just, it's just a really sad situation. I think Brian Flores proved with Miami that he could create a winning culture it seems like the locker room was somewhat divided like some people weren't especially in the offense weren't necessarily his biggest fans but in terms of the results in the field for a team that he basically had to rebuild from zero I think it's been a pretty impressive job Wards that came out when he got fired all of the rumors that were put out there by the insiders seems to if these allegations are true being an attempt to like tarnish discredit him, him. Yeah. 
where obviously he was someone who was willing to you know, stand up for himself. Given the lack of experience that their new hire has in Miami, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment, maybe that's uh, something that they should be concerned about. We wish Flyers the best in this lawsuit, and I'm sure that we'll have plenty more to report on this as the offseason continues. Let's move on to the coaching carousel. There's been a lot of changes. Uh, head coaching moves. Jacksonville have hired former Philadelphia head coach Doug Pedersen as their head coach. He won a Super Bowl with them, but got into fights with their front office, which doesn't bode well when it's Chad Khan, Balky, and everyone there in place. Yeah, look, they did a very good job on the PR. They had slow-motion handshakes of Lawrence meeting him in the office for the first time. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be okay. Inside linebacker coach Mike Caldwell is now being brought in to be the defensive coordinator as well. Minnesota brought in Rams offensive coordinator Kevin O'Connell as their head coach. He's another one of McVay's superstars and will hopefully bring a similar but maybe more pass-heavy scheme. He also was like very quick to say Kirk Cousins is great, which means they've hired a moron. Miami hired San Francisco's offensive coordinator Mike Daniels as head coach. Another Shanahan tree type one, but you know... The question really here is just, do they need a new quarterback if they stuck with Tua? Houston have decided to promote Lovey Smith, the head coach, is a veteran coach, former head coach and defense coordinator experience over the last 20 years. Now, the thing is, they did say, like, we've announced him to be our coach for the 2022 season, which sounded a little bit like they said, the loud part quiet and the quiet part loud. Because <laughs> <laughs> it definitely sounds like this might be another one-and-done situation. There's also rumours about that they didn't want to pick Lovey Smith, but they thought the optics would be really bad if they picked a, another white coach with minimal experience. And New Orleans promoted Dennis Allen, their defense coordinator the head coach they went through a lot of other candidates but decided to promote internally this was like at the start of that process for New Orleans who they thought was going to be the, the likely winner and he, he held out and that stuff hasn't really got a huge amount of head coaching experience or whatever but like the defense has played pretty well for them so hopefully that's grand so these are sloppy teams making moves here what do we think anything jumping out to you the Jacksonville situation maybe the Las Vegas McDaniels hire we talked about last week will be that's more the disastrous worst. but this, this is very much in that same Stralin because like Doug Pedersen obviously won a Super Bowl I think he does have a good relationship with a quarterback so that's good for Trevor Lawrence but the reason that he and the the Eagles fell out only a couple of years after winning a Super Bowl is because he couldn't get along with ownership he couldn't get along with Harry Roseman and you know Shad Khan has shown to be a pretty interesting owner but in particular Trent Balky has been shown to be an absolute cunt to get along with not only here with Jacksonville but also in San Francisco when he ran Harbaugh out of there you know this is a situation where you're just getting a lot of explosive personalities in the same room and in Khan and individually doesn't seem to have much ability to kind of control his poor choices looking bad at Urban Meyer last year and it just mm. seems like a recipe for disaster like look if he get Lawrence going the offense looked really good all that be forgotten but look I think it's hard not to just talk about the reports that were coming out that they were going to hire Leftwich, the offensive coordinator for Tampa Bay but he was saying that he would not take the job unless his preferred candidate for GM was brought in and Balky was kicked out the door they chose to with Balky, who's obviously very unpopular um, with the fans, with people in general. So, just a very toxic situation. Like, Pedersen won a Super Bowl, maybe he can make the best of it, but it's not not looking great there. Then O'Connell and McDaniel, they're kind of very similar situations. I would trust the Minnesota situation more, although just to say that Kevin O'Connell hasn't been officially hired because you can't hire him before because the Rams are already still in the Super Bowl. They're going to bring the McVeigh system, which of course is an offshoot of the Shanahan system. Um, so maybe a little bit more passing than what you saw under the Kubiak scheme that they're running in Minnesota. But overall, very similar scheme to what Kirk Cousins is working under. I think the contract situation with Cousins, unless they get a good deal or good offer in the offseason for a trade, it makes sense to get a you know put full an offense around him that he's going to more or less be familiar with, and then see if Kevin O'Connell can extract a few more inches out of him than was he was getting under kind of the 
less offense focused regime that was there previously a bit more love see what you get but like oh, look, thank god uh, we're gonna have a more kirk cousin focused offense <laughs> yeah well like the, the upside isn't like the upside probably isn't there but i think o'connell he'll be given one chance to see if cousins work and then try and see what else is out there and uh, mcdaniel look he's a very young candidate biracial so i think san francisco got some uh, draft compensation for him but as i kind of alluded to previously we obviously just see miami kicking brian flores to the curb and having some pretty uh, serious allegations you're getting a guy in here with very little experience and very little like, i don't know how much control he's going to have as a head coach and of course he's been inheriting a, a quarterback in tua that the organization doesn't seem to be that much in love with but uh, so that kind of creates some toxicity for yourself i don't know he's going to mediate that relationship so look the, the shanahan scheme everyone's using it these days i'm sure that bit will work out but in terms of the organizational side i'm not really sure how well that's go but like look sean uh, i think houston they may even be a level above that I, it really probably doesn't matter who the head coach is these days i mean someone more experienced than collie is obviously good and lovey smith you know he does bring that kind of the gravitas of someone who's coached for uh, even at the head coaching level for for 10 or 11 seasons and he did have a good run with the Bears back in the day. But the problems the Texans have are much, much deeper. They're, you know, they're structural in terms of the organization and the such like. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens. They obviously have the huge quarterback problems still ongoing and, and whether or not to reintegrate Deshaun Watson um, or not. Again, having an experience has, would be useful for that. Be interesting to see. And also, I mean, in terms of the, the Saints, I mean, the big problem with the Saints is that that entire organization is being rebuilt from the ground up now with Peyton gone and a year out from Drew Brees. And God knows how good that team is actually going to be or how bad it is. They've got a very good defense, but their offense was just non-existent last year. Promoting the defensive guy obviously suggested that that's the way they're going to, to focus on is to build a good defense and then try to work with there. But I can see that being a long way back. Uh, the entire NFC South looks like a dumpster fire now with, with Brady and Peyton gone. I don't think I was mentioned before, but the Vikings one is interesting in the sense that I there were rumors, at least I heard there were rumors about Jim Harbaugh being quite close to being on board. Yeah, yeah. there was. So, so he flew out to them on National Signing Day or something. So it was like a big call for him to go and look at it. Some of his Michigan coaches and stuff were being moved on, which suggests that there was kind of a transition in place. That would have been very exciting because obviously they were, in, the, in his San Fran days, he did create a Super Bowl caliber team. He would have been interesting. Whereas to go instead with this kind of trying to build upon the McVeigh tree, which we don't actually know how good the McVeigh tree is yet, is going to be interesting. Just in terms of that, just like the Super Bowl, as <laughs> we're going to talk about at the moment, it's all McVeigh. But yeah, I think Harbaugh, apparently they were saying that he interviewed very badly. Apparently he was uh, looking for a lot more control. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, anything that makes the Vikings look better will be a godsend, given how much we end up watching them, it seems. Um, <laughs> so none of them are, none of them feels like the perfect fit or even a particularly good fit. They're all got question marks over them and they could all be disasters. I think it's more likely, they're all kind of more likely to be bad than they are to be good. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Uh, other small bits of changes, Indianapolis brought in Gus Bradley to be their defensive coordinator. He replaces Matt Eberflus. Buffalo have promoted QB coach Ken Dorsey to offense coordinator and hired uh, Joe Brady from Carolina to be their QB coach. Vegas have hired Giants defensive coordinator Patrick Graham to be their defensive coordinator because they just don't want to have a defense, apparently. Giants have hired Baltimore defensive coordinator Don Markendale to be their defensive coordinator because they do now want to have a defense. <laughs> and Green Bay have hired special teams coach from Las Vegas, Rich Bisaccia, as their special teams coach, as they essentially want two head coaches. So that seems that seems fair. I'm surprised yes. Bisaccia had to settle for a special teams job, given I thought he actually did a pretty decent job in the interim for the Raiders. That's kind of that's the only major one that jumps out to me out of that. 
Well, he, he was a special teams coach for, for the Raiders, so obviously if the head coach position wasn't available, then he was going to end up going back to that position, even though I know it's held in slightly less esteem than a defensive coordinator or offensive coordinator role. And like Green Bay deemed that lost in the divisional round because of their special teams. Their special teams has been notoriously bad for the last three years. So getting a guy like Passaccia, who obviously has got a lot of extra experience based on last year, but also put together a pretty good special teams unit, made sense. In terms of these other hires, I think Indianapolis, like obviously they need to replace a big guy in Matt Eberflus. I think Bradley, you know, he's, he's changed a lot since he was at Seattle, but he still kind of runs a similar scheme. I think that should be a decent enough fit. Buffalo is kind of important because I think the Giants' new head coach was looking to hire away Ken Dorsey as his offensive coordinator, but they've kept some continuity with there and his relationship with Josh Allen. That's important. And I think Joe Brady is a very interesting wild card. Obviously, someone who disappointed as an OC in, in Carolina after being so well touted as, a, as the LSU wonderkind, getting an interesting opportunity there to work alongside Josh Allen and Ken Dorsey. The Vegas Giants thing is weird. Like, I think the expectation was that Patrick. Graham was going to stay with the Giants but the the McDaniels came in late and poached him and then the Giants immediately went out and got you know a fairly well respected defensive coordinator Don Wink Bartondale who was surprisingly uh, fired by the uh, Baltimore Ravens a, a week yeah. or so ago you know obviously they, they have things that they want to see there I think both those defenses aren't haven't necessarily been well the biggest defense hasn't been great maybe they'll improve but the Giants defense is, a, is probably the best part about that team but that's not necessarily saying much. yeah that's really really not saying much we'll move on and have a look at crime and punishment New Orleans running back Alvin Kamara has been arrested on battery charges from an incident stemming from night out in Las Vegas before the Pro Bowl. Police report states that it happened at the Elevators Casino where the victim tried to enter the elevator with Kamara's group. Kamara being the very smart and copped-on individual he is, apparently aware that there was some kind of, that this was happening, and then went and appeared at the Pro Bowl. But obviously, if this ends up being a serious incident, the you know he was involved in this. This is another bad knock for a New Orleans offense that is on the ropes from last year, has lost its head coach and a lot of its quality starters already. You can't really see this New Orleans attack without Kamara. This is uh, potentially a very serious incident. Effectively, the, what the victim said is that basically they were waiting outside the elevator. Um, he tried to get on the elevator. Kamara put his hand on his chest to kind of say, you're not getting in here, buddy. He swiped the hand away and then Kamara and his associates basically kicked the shit out of him. And I think initially it's associated to kind of got him on the ground, but then Kamara and his associate joined in and kind of, you know, kicking him while he's down effectively. And Kamara's Lovely. response to this was apparently... No, like he 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 said something. He said one of my like I think his partner or one of the partners was there and called them ugly. He incited the incident, and then Kamara only started hitting him when he thought he was running away, which I don't necessarily think is the legal like slam dunk he thinks it is. Uh, but <laughs> it's only when the, it's only when the immediate threat passed that I truly pounced. But apparently there is CCTV footage, according to the uh, Las Vegas police, uh, that corroborates the victim's understanding of what happened. And so it really just comes down to how much Kamara can get his fall guys to take a bit of the rap and how quickly he's able to shove some money uh, into the hands of the victim to try and make this go away quicker. I think, you know, there is a chance this will get very serious. Like, uh, as far as I know, the, the, the Vegas jurisdiction is pretty harsh on these types of incidents because obviously casinos tend to have a bad reputation for this so they tend mm. to want to keep that tamped down but obviously with enough money and enough stuff going on perhaps this will be kind of brought down to you know a fine and, uh you know some probably community service or something like that and he can avoid some jail time but there is a very real chance he will get uh, a jail time for battery charge causing severe bodily harm as far as i know the the bodily harm in this case was uh he like an orbital fracture basically the the eye socket oh jesus bone, yeah which can be a very serious one depending uh, on the specifics of the injury so that will probably also play into how much uh, willingness 
there is to cooperate on this. So, look, we know settlements happen. I think the NFL will probably throw uh, a suspension on him if he, even if he avoids uh, jail time. But very unfortunate instance by all accounts. Other bits of news. Washington football team are no more. They're now the Washington commies, the commanders. <laughs> commandos. Uh, the commandos. <laughs> yeah. What oh. do we think? I think this name is Terrible. awful. It's just Terrible awful. Name. Horrend. I mean, it's just, you can't even chant it properly. It's going to be shortened to commies. It, the uniforms are ugly. It has completely uninspiring. It sounds like a fucking XFL team. It really it's, does. Uh, really, I bought into the Washington football team. I thought it was, a, it was kind of a cool branding, given the, the kind of more European style of branding of, of a sports team. It kind of allowed it to stand out a bit. Um, mm. I don't know why they needed to change it. Yeah, they could have picked a million better things than Washington Commanders. And it's an incredibly reactionary pick, because obviously the context here with the previous team name being a, a slur for Native Americans. And so what does the Dan Snyder do? He's like, okay, well, it, we're, we're all about the military and being, you know, America. And it's like, okay, that, I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to recompense for having a racist name for 50 years. This feels like like a team named like Donald Trump would have picked or something like that. It's just yeah. know, pretty pathetic overall. The Washington Americans. <laughs> Good God, you know, it's awful. Just more, more, more pain and hurt for fans of that Washington football team. I might just keep calling them the Washington football team because I don't like the term commanders. <laughs> and the Denver Broncos are for sale. Yeah, the hope that the sale will be complete by the start of the 2022 season. They're up in the region of about $4 billion. Yeah. There was a lot of legal wrangling over the ownership of the Denver Broncos over the yeah. last few years between his fa- children. Family feuding over who gets yeah. control, isn't it? And I think the, the final lawsuit that was finally settled was, uh, well, was lost by the, the person tried it. was I think it was some other family where the previous owner, who's been dead several years at this point, had given him an option to buy some of the team. But apparently that's not transferable when not only is the person who gave the option dead, but the person who was given the option is also dead. Uh, apparently you can't just uh, keep that going. Uh, generationally so that's why it's opened up but like yeah they're they're hoping to get about four billion perhaps even more out of this you know i think the most prominent as uh, the person associated with is uh peyton manning's been putting together a, a consortium apparently practically speaking i think you know we know that ownership does matter the record of owners compared to kind of some of the legacy owners has been here some bad ones some great ones i'm just reminded of that simpsons uh, joke <laughs> where homer gets the broncos from hank scorpio and wanted the cowboys broncos. instead yeah <laughs> the Denver Broncos. Oh, Marge, you just don't understand just don't football. Just understand football. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the Denver Broncos are up for sale. Uh, maybe we should set up a like GoFundMe and try and raise the money for it. Like we could, we could run a team. I'm sure. We've got the. I'm not sure, they want a Chiefs fan in in, in the executive suite. <laughs> hey, hey, I'll be. I'll, uh, I'll let you guys make the decisions. I'll just give you good i good ideas. Okay, <laughs> let's go and have a look. A uh, quick look at what happened at the Pro Bowl last week. So we'll start with, we were right on what we called AFC won the game, 41-35. to This was very much tag football, uh, just played with professionals. Uh, AFC hold on late as the defense dominated the first half. 12 turnovers, including three touchdowns. Miles Garrett had a pick six on a failed fourth and 15. The, they were trialing the new kickoff rule where you could start on your own, I think it's, a, so you could start on your own 25 with a fourth and 15 rather than kicking the ball away. They went zero for eight on those because most of the wide receivers were just walking around like uh, it was a nice, lazy Sunday stroll. No one really cared. It was very relaxing. A couple of long drives in the second half. There was some fun bits of play so we had Diggs' brothers to them 
them, them playing against each other, which was good fun. Mac Jones pretended to score a touchdown and did a gritty dance in the end zone. Like Evans over Perryman was fun. Max Crosby <laughs> taking it maybe a little bit too seriously and winning himself the uh, the MVP. You were you were you were banging the drum for him, Sean. So very well done on that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Herbert threw two big arm touchdowns as well. It was uh, it was fun, but it wasn't. It lacked a little bit of the edge the previous Pro Bowls have had for me personally. Basically a non-event. There are operating rules where if you got touched, then the play was over. There were some very brief attempts by people like Micah Parsons to try and make it into a game, but everyone was like, no, we're not doing that. It's like as I said, the first half was just a disaster. Like First play from Kyler Murray was a, a touchdown pick six to Darius Leonard and it didn't get better from there because the wide receivers were basically just not battered. They, they were only taking like five yards. And as, as you mentioned, like Miles Garrett had a pick six and one of those fourth and the 15 attempts, which the NFL is going to use as an excuse to stop that thing happening, you know, stopping the, the fourth and 15 thing. But they, this was not a fair evaluation of that particular trial, of, of that yeah. particular rule. You'd, you'd, you'd hope uh, that it'll get run in some preseasons or something and maybe get a get, yeah. a, get a look at it that way. But so I suppose inter- it'll also suffer from, like, if it's happening in the fourth quarter of the second preseason game, let's be honest, that's not NFL quality players who are trying it out. Like, the only players who seem to be, try- well, not trying, but that kind of put up some impressive stuff was, like, yeah, as you mentioned, Evans kind of mossed uh, Denzel Perryman, the linebacker, kind of over his head, which was nice. Max Crosby was definitely trying too hard and got a couple of sacks. And then, yeah, Justin Herbert, apparently, even when he's just, like, half-assing it, he, he still throws it, like, a thousand miles an hour and kind of got two touchdowns off that, which were pretty sweet. But, yeah, I think, the, like, the most fun stuff was definitely the Diggs and Diggs action, where one event was where Trayvon Diggs playing wide receiver and Stefan Diggs was playing the defensive back, but then the actual play played out as if it had been reversed anyway like they were doing their actual role and then there was one late touchdown for Stefan Diggs where he like pointed at his brother taunted him uh, which they didn't flag (laughs) (laughs) that was kind of pretty fun and like Mac Jones probably takes the prize for the the kind of easiest highlight with the uh ridiculous gritty dance because like as I was saying like tapping you or touching you in the game with play was over so the refs were pulling and he's just like no I'm just gonna run all the way down I'm gonna do my gritty dance gonna have to crack it wasn't very like, it was fine to have on in the background and watch the highlights or stuff like that like we'll fly through the skill challenges precision passing NFC one Russell Wilson just absolutely dominated it he got 29 points Mike Jones got eight Hunter Enfro got one Justin Jefferson got zero fastest man Mike Parsons tried fucking no one else did like he was the only one who was running full speed boy he's fast shirtless and Chubb was Chubb was pretty close but you know Chubb was you know fast dude anyway thread the needle which was a eh, I wasn't overly impressed with that one Matt Jones beat Diggs and Slay with four late three pointers to Kirk Cousins 11 points this is basically where they lined up two defensive backs against a wall with holes in it and you had to throw at them it was when we were discussing like oh they're gonna they're gonna put more focus on Cousins gets more passing in there this is a fucking Pro Bowl skill game and Kirk Cousins was throwing balls away because he had already thrown a pick I thought that he maybe had enough in 11 points to win that it was awful best catch Trayvon Diggs bit at his brother with a trampoline somersault catch and dodgeball Justin Jefferson made a one-handed catch to knock out Nick Chubb after Nick Chubb knocked out I think three men on his own when he was left on his own to try and face the NFC it was a solid skills performance from the NFC but not enough to win the actual big game it had weird rules where like the last dodgeball has like worth three points and all the ones were one point so it's classic you know rendering all previous rounds pointless anyway. yeah <laughs> but like I think for me the highlights were probably like the uh like, like, the Trayvon Diggs, like, the one that won the best catch was pretty sweet. Like, you know, doing a flip and then catching is pretty sweet. I, I, I do think, like, I do sh- think the, 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 the catch through the table was criminally yeah. overlooked. 
Yeah, like, well, like, it wasn't overlooked, but, like, I think, you know, it was probably second. But, like, Stefan Diggs, yeah, just, like, catching the ball while going through a table. Like, that's pretty sweet. He's definitely got into the swing of things. Uh, I'm sure if Josh Allen would be there, he probably would have volunteered as well. But, like, look, the, the dodgeball is probably the only one that they seem to take somewhat seriously. And fair play to Justin Jefferson. That was a pretty sweet catch to, to knock out Nick Chubb at the end after it looked like a pretty, a pretty scary place there for the NFC. Also, Russell Wilson, he's been at the Pro Bowl a lot, so he's definitely been practicing that game. <laughs> and all these other guys are just, like, like showing up and doing crap. They should just move the Pro Bowl to the middle of the season. I'm, I'm pretty much convinced now that every other American sport has a mid-season All-Star game. And they don't always take it all that seriously anyway. I watch the basketball one a lot, and they tend to fuck around for three quarters. And then actually, if it's a close game, they become super competitive in the fourth because they actually all want to win. Having it when people are basically on their holidays just kind of defeats the point. You know, the Pro Bowl is sacrosanct on this pod, but I think it could actually be made better if they pull it in like week nine or something instead of in this kind of dead week between between Super Bowl and Championship games. See, my only problem is that I think if you have it in week nine, more players will not turn up. That'll be my only concern. Some sports just aren't very amenable to friendly. I've got it, guys. We reverse it around. We vote for who we think the Pro Bowl players are, and then they act as coaches, and all of the NFL head coaches have to play the game. (laughs) (laughs) Like Andy Reid on the line. I would would fucking watch the shit out of that. Like it, It comes up every year, but it's not that big a deal. Like It's fine. No, it's good stuff. Uh, and I suppose we better we better move on to the big game that's coming up this week. Super Bowl 56. Okay, so we've come to Super Bowl 56. Uh, Cincinnati versus the LA Rams. Obviously being held in LA, so they are the home team, even though I'm not sure who officially is the home team this year. I, I think Cincinnati so. are officially the home team. Yeah. But the Rams are going to be able to use their own locker room that they use their own games because apparently the Chargers have their own home locker room, which the Cincinnati Bengals will be getting. So <laughs> it's Fair basically... The road home, basically. Yeah, so Cincinnati versus the Rams. We'll start probably just off the top. We'll start with our predictions and we'll kind of break down section by section. So I'm taking Cincinnati to win in an exciting close game that's eventually decided with uh, Cincinnati defense making a play as the Rams are driving. And I have it at 34-28. I also take the Bengals 31-28. to I think this is, for me, this is a toss-up about both these teams have shown at times that they can be very explosive, but also can have some poor showings. But obviously they're all both in good form. And yeah, it's a toss-up for me, but I'm going to give it to Cincinnati 31-28. to Since I've been back in the Rams this entire season to win the Super Bowl, it would be kind of cowardly to back out now. So I'm going to go <laughs> for them to win. I think they've proven in the last two games that they have got the grit. They're not, they're not a Hollywood team. They're a real gritty championship team. I see the Bengals doing the same thing they did in, in previous playoff games, which is kicking a lot of field goals. But I think they won't be able to keep pace with the Rams, who will score touchdowns. So I'm going to go for Rams 28, uh, Bengals 19. Okie dokie. So we'll kind of have a look at the two or three main areas in this and maybe a few other bits that might play into it. We'll kick off with the Cincinnati offense versus the LA Rams defense. So in the Cincinnati offense, we've seen Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase just kind of get into their mind meld college day stuff over the last couple of weeks there's been one or two down games in there but overall they've been good this is a Cincinnati offense it's loaded with quality receivers they've got T Higgins they've got uh, obviously Jamar Chase and all that we've got you know do, do we have confirmation that the tight end is back in this this week no, so we don't know whether either Tyler Higby for the Rams or CJ Uzama yeah. for Cincinnati are going to play. I think there is some optimism for CJ Uzama for Cincinnati. Higby 
it's more they've been much more vague so we've got that kind of lovely collection of and Tyler Boyd as well obviously is another receiving option for them there Joe Mixon has had a very good season he was third or fourth in yardage total he's had a particularly good last couple of weeks coming into this he's been able to kind of take the pressure off them our big questions coming in this are going to be obviously this LA Rams defense they have incredible individual superstars so Aaron Donald is incredible he causes huge issues this Cincinnati offensive line has been suspect all year I think it was three weeks ago where they allowed nine sacks that were recorded and two that weren't recorded so like 11 sacks and they were against less quality defenses than this. We've got questions of will Ramsey be going one-on-one with Jamar Chase and following him for the day, or will he just be trying to lock down a single area of the field to try and cause issues? Can Mixon take some pressure off the pass game? Because we've seen when they get too locked into it, it can be a problem, but Burrow does have a good arm for it. Or can this defense kind of confound the Cincinnati offense? Because if we think about it, there was an incredible performance to win against the Chiefs in that second half last week. But for the first half, they got essentially nothing going at all on offense until the last three minutes of the first half. There's a lot of elements here. I would probably say this LA Rams defense is stronger than the, the defenses that they faced the last two matches. But this Cincinnati offense is definitely better than the offenses that the Rams have, have been dealing with. For me, the, the big question here is, is the O-line. I, I think the... We've been talking and we've kind of seen it all through. There was the, was it the Titans where they got sacked nine times? The, the yep. Cincinnati O-line is a piece of shit. Joe Burrow is going to be under a lot of pressure all day. When you're facing people like Aaron Donald, you're facing people like Von Miller, that, that's a very scary proposition. Can he get out balls quick enough? Can he use his mobility? Can he survive the endless pounding that he's going to be receiving? Is the big kind of question there. If Burrow can step up, and he has, to be fair, stepped up in the other games so far to get these kind of passes away, then the Bengals have a chance. But I do worry as the game goes on, if they're going to get at him a lot and the the, the injuries and the hits start to pile up because that O-line is going to have to do an awful lot better than they've done. But if Burrow can get the passes out, then there are problems there for the Rams. Um, I mean, I don't want to get into my to spoil my Jalen Ramsey four-hour podcast where he plays <laughs> and how he plays is going to be big for this they've they've had this weird thing this year where they've been kind of using him in different spots they've moved him up into the the line the linebacker spots they've kind of been moving around as, as kind of a jack of all trades which kind of I think taken him away from his actual skill which is he a one-on-one corner I mean he's not perfect but I do think he's on his top he's one of the best corners in, in the game and we saw in the Bucks game which I thought was quite interesting the first time they did try and kind of turn him back to being a stick to playing your one-on-one corner guy against Mike Evans and he got beaten a few times and indeed was he like the only thing that was working for the Bucks in that so I think maybe he's lost his edge a little bit he's gone too much jack of all trades not enough master of one him against Jamar Chase it's going to be interesting to see do they trust Ramsey to be the one-on-one guy or do they kind of feel the need to put up some, some kind of defensive scheming to work on him teams have struggled a lot with Jamar Chase once he gets behind that first defender he is unstoppable so it's going to be interesting to see but in order for Jamar Chase to be catching the balls, Burrow's going to have to be in a position to throw them. And I, and I do worry about his ability to survive the what is going to be a very tough defensive line pressure throughout. And if he ends up with less than six sacks, then it probably will be a good day for the Bengals. <laughs> Joe Burrow's going to get hit. That that nearly always happens, except strangely against Kansas City in the championship round. The thing is that 
that's been true all season. He's been getting hit all season. He was, I think, most sacked quarterback in the entire league during the season. He obviously took those nine sacks against Tennessee, and he's obviously been more than capable of playing around that. Uh, like the Kansas City Chiefs, like they specifically didn't get aggressive with him because they had obviously been blown up by him when they went aggressive with him in the regular season. You know, the difference between the Chiefs and the Rams is that the Rams don't really need to bring extra men to get pressure. They obviously have Aaron Donald. They have Von Miller, who's in the last few weeks has looked like Von Miller the kind of stud that he was in Denver and then they have guys like Leonard Floyd on the other side who can clean up and Gary Gaines who's pretty solid as a nose tackle so you know that's I suppose the big thing for Cincinnati is that like the Browns probably aren't going to have to do anything too special to get pressure on them to get their hits but it, it still needs to be very effective on the back because we know Joe Burrow if if he's given the right look he will make a decision immediately he will obviate the, the cost that comes with having that bad offensive line. And I think, you know, if you're talking about Jamar Chase versus Ramsey one-on-one, which will be a very important schematic decision by the Rams, like we've seen in the playoffs that teams have taken away Jamar Chase to some extent, not completely, but to some extent by taking a safety and putting him over the top. But obviously Jalen Ramsey is being paid as a lockdown cornerback one, even though he's not necessarily done that all season, as you said, Sean. This seems like a game that I'm sure Jalen Ramsey is, is banging the table saying, Give me Jamar Chase. I'm going to take him down. And then you can focus your other resources on T. Higgins uh, and Tyler Boyd. Because we know that the linebackers for the Rams, they've definitely cheaped down on that. The linebacker play in the championship round was probably like their Achilles heel in terms of like being able to get stops defensively. You saw Debo Samuel kind of get do well on tunnel screens and stuff like that, for example. So those are things that they can definitely take advantage for if they're over-resourcing to stop Chase. And so, yeah, then those guys become more important. And C.J. Uzama, if he's healthy, is a decent uh, release valve. And we know that Joe Mixon, he wasn't used all the time in the uh, passing game, but he is an effective passer. He caught around 40-something balls and they have a lot of uh, diverse looks that they're able to use with him. I think if you're a Bengals fan, like the ideal would be you'd actually be able to get Mixon going, though, as a runner first. I think that's one thing that they've not necessarily got fully going from the start uh, in their playoff games so far. I think it was important in the second half against the Chiefs just to kind of keep them keep them tidy and he was solid enough against the uh, the Titans, but you're talking about like four yards a carry, that type of behavior, only getting like a touchdown or, or zero touchdowns in a game. We've seen games for him over the course of the year where Joe Mixon has been able to take over, particularly if they get a lead. I think it's going to be another tough day for Burrow, but he's damned well used to it at this point. So I have faith that Joe Burrow will continue to do whatever happens to need to be done to beat whatever particular defense is put in front of him. You know, he's going to have another, he's going to get hit a lot, uh, but that's what he, you know, he takes his shots, he gets back up again. That's been the Joe Burrow story. So I don't expect it to change here. That is kind of what we're expecting coming into this. And as we said, just how Ramsey plays and how that pressure affects them is going to kind of define that competition there let's go to the other side then this LA Rams offense versus the Cincinnati defense this Rams offense has been let's be honest up and down there's been good games and bad games but they definitely you know they've had a few more of the positive ones of late it's been their changes at quarterback that have allowed them to get this far like you could see you could see how they would not have won two weeks ago if they had not gotten an upgrade at the quarterback position but this is a Cincinnati defense that we've been saying throughout the season has been overperforming its talent level that they found a few more players than we would kind of expect like last week their defense coordinator came out and just kind of shook it up dropping eight and causing problems and shut out the Kansas City Chiefs offense in the second half their defensive backs have been massively overperforming where where we think they should be but would they be able to keep a superstar like Cooper Cup in check because I, I don't know how you keep him in check but I would have said the same thing against possibly Hill and, and then 
the big question then is if Cincinnati go for a similar type of defensive structure to what they did against the Chiefs two weeks ago where they were dropping eight and just rushing three and sometimes four can they generate the pressure with three or four man rushes I know they've had some injuries along that defensive front so maybe that might be causing them some issues in that but if they can get pressure on them this is not an offense that is earth shattering any stretch with this Rams but it's solid it has playmakers and has a kind of a almost a methodicalness to you find you'd struggle to see them being completely shut out here even if everything goes right for the Cincinnati defense they have been getting more performance out of the run game of late which is something that the Chiefs just went away from and they were getting success against the Cincinnati defense on two weeks ago as well does this Cincinnati team stand a chance of slowing down and, and, and all the other bits they have here or is this kind of primed for a Matt Stafford kind of meltdown game where they just throw him a look he's not expecting and he kind of crumbles a little bit as we have seen happen in the past Cup is going to get his no matter what happens he's going to get at least 100 yards so I think the in terms of like this showdown between the Cincinnati defense and the Rams offense it's about all the other bits can you stop OBJ can you stop the run game can you stop Tyler Higby if he's playing can you stop the big bomb plays the Van Jefferson like Cup is just out of this world and his relationship with Matt Stafford is such that he's basically impossible to cover so I imagine that they will bring lots of extra resources down to limit him to a a handful of plays and hopefully avoid those kind of huge schematic mistakes that you saw by say the the Tampa Bay where they just had a couple of blown plays and let Cup have easy touchdowns for me like Cup is going to do well you can't stop Cup so it's about everything else I think in terms of Matt Stafford like I think Matt Stafford I've been I've I've kind of said mea culpa he, he he has really impressed me he has been really playing at a really high level but I would say that against some of these defenses they've been more aggressive sometimes especially when they when they've gone behind and he you know I think against San Francisco in particular who he struggled again who obviously wasn't he obviously made the key plays in that in that game but obviously wasn't you know explosive the big thing was that if you have a defensive line that can create pressure with four man rushes without blitzing then Matt Stafford can be held in check I think you can't blitz him because he loves blitzes we saw that in the end of the Tampa Bay game and so for then it for me it comes really down to that Cincinnati defensive line which is really interesting it's very much a blue collar lunch pail type of defensive line high motor maybe not necessarily the most like you know freakish athletes but you know you have DJ Reader he's going to be key because if he can clog up the run and he's just such a huge guy he's so good against the run then that will obviously make sure that you do the first step which is putting the pressure on Matt Stafford and kind of making it harder to do the play action stuff that that obviously would get guys like Van Jefferson and to a lesser extent OBJ Van Jefferson in particular is very reliant on those play action plays to kind of be an effective receiver but then of course on the edge you have Sam Hubbard Trey Hendrickson Trey Hendrickson's obviously been a, he's been great for the last two years came in as a free agent here has made an immediate impact and you saw that he's such a high effort defensive end like you saw late on in that game against Kansas City he was like chasing Patrick Mahomes all the way out to the sideline which isn't necessarily something to see that from every defensive end so even if he doesn't make an immediate impact to Matt Stafford he's going to keep him thinking keep him moving in the pocket like and not able to kind of compare the defensive backs at the back end so I think from that point of view you know Sam Hubbard is be pretty solid alongside him so I think that's fine like I think if there's a weakness here like it actually is the defensive backs I would probably say like you know their, their linebacker like Logan Wilson's been solid but the other linebackers aren't necessarily the best and so you could see Tyler Higby in particularly important or perhaps seeing OBJ on some option routes or Cooper Cup on some option routes that could be problematic for them and in the back end like look Eli Apple's going to get burned by Cooper Cup at least once but I think keep an eye out for Jesse Bates he's been making big plays all throughout the playoffs he's been getting interceptions when they matter and we know like Matt Stafford's been perfect so far against these aggressive defenses but against a, a kind of a defense which isn't trying 
to trick you or isn't trying to blitz you or, or like run your clock up. They're just playing hard, solid football. It's hard to break down. You know, there is a chance that they could get to Matt Stafford, wear him down. And, you know, I don't know if they're going to do like a Matt, like a, a, sorry, a Patrick Mahomes thing where they completely confuse him. But, you know, I think Anarumo has earned enough respect that, you know, those kind of adjustments could be made in game and could be very significant. Do you think the Stafford thing is important? I think it is important to keep in mind that this is, I mean, it's the biggest game of his career and this is a, it's a long road for him to have gotten here and he's had numerous heartbreaks and numerous failings in the past. And even though he stepped up in the playoffs and all credit to him, he's performed very well in two playoff games, stepping up when he needed to. There's still a mistake in him. You feel that he's he's never too far away from an error. In the regular season, there were a lot of kind of sloppy interceptions. He can get baited into throws that he doesn't, he shouldn't be making. They should, disguise looks can be kind of a nightmare for him. So you wonder if they will be trying to throw some kind of weird stuff at him making him think that his player is open when in fact that there are safeties ready to pounce. I mean, the Cincy defense, the secondary in particular, is quite good at interceptions. They are quite at kind of finding their moment to strike and pick them off. So it's going to be interesting to see how he reacts to that. And I think it might decide the entire game is if Stafford can play the game that we he's capable of playing on a kind of a positive sense, then I think it's going to be very hard for the Bengals to keep pace. But if they can start to induce mistakes in him, then suddenly this whole thing can fall apart. Because I think the Rams are kind of fragile psychologically in the sense as long as everything is going right they're a very hard team to stop but if you can get at them if you can start to make things go badly then it can fall apart very quickly that books game i think is the kind of the perfect example of that they were running away with it and then suddenly things started to go bad and it all fell apart in an instant i mean the problem you would have for for cincy is i i i do have a lot of time for that secondary i mean People like Awuzie have kind of been talking up an awful lot, a lot. And as Fitz says, Jesse Bates has really stepped up this season. He's he's had a slow start. He wasn't great in the regular season, but he's been stepping up. And even Eli Apple, you know, as much as I love to rag on him, he did have a period in the season where he was actually playing at the best I've ever seen him play and making interceptions and making good plays. But he got annihilated against the Chiefs. He was the he made a number of mistakes, three or four really really bad mistakes, cost a touchdown in one spot, missed an interception in another spot. He can't be making those kind of mistakes in the Super Bowl because when you've got players like Cup, when you've got players like OBJ, when you've got those kind of options, you need to be a hundred percent perfect and you would worry about mistakes in players like Eli Apple, the weaknesses in the secondary, they do have a tendency to get beaten kind of long down the middle and you'd be interesting to see if Stafford starts to target long throws down the middle as opposed to, to long throws to the corner to, to, to try and exploit that. So it is a question. I think on talent, I think that the Rams offense is better than the Bengals defense. If this game was on paper, I would worry about how much the Bengals would give up. But these games aren't played on paper. They're played in high pressure situations, hometown stadium, expectation, LA is the center for the NFL media, so you know the media circus is going to be off the hook in a way that it isn't when they're outside of LA. The Rams are going to have a ton of pressure on them, and if they crack, they're going to crack badly. It could be one of those Seahawks-Broncos games where the whole thing just, just falls to bits in a, in a very gruesome way. So it'll be interesting to see what happens and how the defense schemes against Stafford is a very big part of that psychological battle, I think. Yeah. And there is also, the, coming into the second half, the psychological edge that uh, Stafford might have, being, you know, with his history with the Detroit Lions and the fact that Eminem will be performing during the halftime show, he might realise this is his one shot and one opportunity. I think it's really it's a really interesting contrast because we talked about the Rams defence versus Cincinnati. It's all about star on star, like Jamar versus Jalen Ramsey, Donald taking on Joe Burrow. And you look at this other side, and um, it's very much more about the secondary guys going on, like can Eli Apple kind of keep OBJ 
uh, in check. And even Cooper Cup, obviously, has been amazing this year, but he's not like a... He doesn't have that kind of superstar kind of vibe about him. More about, like, kind of calm acres, kind of get y- tough yards against a guy like DJ Raider up the middle. That kind of reflects, I suppose, how we kind of felt around these teams. Like, Cincinnati's offense is so explosive and the Rams' defense had so many superstars, where as a Cincinnati defense, I said, it's kind of a you know, blue-collar type defense. It'll be interesting to see what they can do. But I think against Matt Stafford, against this set of kind of high, strong people, that kind of keep calm and carry on type of approach might be the right way to do it. So let's take a look at the coaching then. So we've got two coaches who know each other very well. And I suppose it's a question of who's going to be able to adjust to it. McVeigh obviously makes mistakes with some kind of poor timing, some timeouts, some challenges and stuff that have just gone completely haywire for him, particularly in the playoffs. It's also he got the monkey on his back of the let's be frank, utter collapse the last time he was in a game uh, of, of, of of this scale behind him. The problem that we have in this comparison for me is that Zach Taylor, I still honestly don't have a clue if he's any good. I should know that whether he's good or bad, but like I genuinely don't know if it's just that like he's got a great quarterback who's now got his favourite weapon from... You know, the thing is, their GM has done good work. They've got some good players there, and I don't doubt that. And a, a lot of what makes this Bengals thing so exciting is just... Joe Burrow essentially thinking, think Mahomes four years ago, fuck it, he's down there somewhere and hoofing a ball at them. Like, there's an awful lot that could just be the players, but like, maybe maybe that's just us being overly dismissive. Like, Zach Taylor has to be doing something to get them into this spot to kind of, to build the team around them and everything. In, in the news section, we were talking about all these coaches with questionable uh, personalities like uh, Doug Pedersen and Josh McDaniels, and maybe sometimes there's benefit of just having a coach who just does what needs to be done, doesn't you know, keep people get, getting along. And if you've got a very talented team like he has, then maybe that's the best. Like, as I, I kind of compared them to, like, those like coaches who won under Peyton Manning got a Super Bowl with him, where it's kind of like, like, look, obviously, you know, Joe Burrow is running this offense. And obviously, you know, it's not that complex to say if the goal right is if one one there, go for the goal right. So, you know, that can be a benefit. That can be an advantage uh, to some extent. Obviously, you compare him to the kind of more high-strung genius that is Sean McVeigh and obviously McVeigh is able to do I hate things this genius Sean McVeigh shit like, yeah, I, but like I, I really just don't buy it the thing is he, I think I think he's an incredibly good planner and I think he's going to come in yeah. with a very specific thing I think he's shown time and time again that he can prep really well but he can't adjust for shit like that's it he's an innovator he's like someone who obviously spends uh, presumably an inordinate amount of time trying to break the the game of American football similar to like you know if you if you if you, if you like uh, football like soccer on this side like Pep Guardiola people like that where Zach Taylor just seems a lot more relaxed about the whole thing which can have its own benefits and like I think McVeigh as you say adjustments in game has sometimes been an issue for him we've seen in particular guys like Kyle Shanahan get under his skin and kind of you know beat him out in the, in the second half and then we've seen that all this year he had avoided throwing challenges and kind of uh, to a lesser extent avoided these timeouts but in the playoffs all of his worst instincts have kicked back in he's made terrible challenges he's taken terrible timeouts he's taken bad decisions in terms of timing at the end of half and they've nearly cost them at certain points in the in this postseason but like he seems like someone who has something to prove for his lactator he's just like happy to be there and when you got <laughs> Joe Burrow and you got Lou and Amuro kind of running the defense well and you have a scheme that works um, mm. and a scheme that obviously against a defense which obviously you had plenty of experience of trying to break down with that scheme when you were when you were with the Rams back in the day that that could be its own thing so there's so many teams running this McVeigh Shanahan type scheme these days I'm not even sure that's that big of a deal anymore like maybe McVeigh pulls it out of his ass and finds the secret sauce but more often than not I think they'll just be running the same kind of stuff they, they always do and it's just about who executes better I mean I, I think you, you kind of nailed the McVeigh thing there earlier Connor when you talked about good planning but 
can you trust him in game? I mean, two Super Bowls in four years, that, that kind of stat speaks for himself. He is, you know, still, I think he's still under 40. He's, you know, he's done amazing things. But the last time he was here, he went up against a true coaching genius and got his ass handed to him. They scored three points in, in the Super Bowl, which is, you know, it's a pretty damning record, even if you have Jared Goff as, as your quarterback. And so there is this kind of question of the kind of the pressures on him now that he's going to have to uh, perform in one of these. His teams are going to have to show up in one of these big games, and this is the chance to do it. I think they will have kind of good planning. I think they'll come into it with, with, with a sense of what they're doing, but it is, it's that kind of everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Do the Rams have the adjustments? We have to ask that question. Whereas conversely, I mean, I'm with you, Zach Taylor. The mystery goes on how this guy is uh, a Super Bowl head coach, but you think back to the, the Chiefs game, the, the championship game, the second half adjustments were off yeah. the chart. They, they kicked the shit out of Andy Reid and his team with their adjustments. Who was that? Who was responsible for those kind of moves? It's hard to know from this kind of vantage point. But you got to know that Taylor presumably is in the conversation in certain ways. And even if he isn't making these ideas himself, he's not getting in the way of his coordinators doing it, which can often be uh, you know as important in these kind of situations that they don't become ego contests. So it is going to be interesting to see that if they... Bengals do start to adjust to what the Rams are throwing at them. Can the Rams counter adjust? How good will that adjustment be? Will it be kind of a Chiefs level adjustment again for the Bengals? It could be an interesting game where the first half is the Rams in relative control and then the Bengals flick the switch in the second half and suddenly it's an entirely different game. And that will be a very interesting scenario to see as to see who kind of then the lights start to become very bright and then it suddenly starts to become about individual execution in big moments. So it will be interesting to see and I think yeah we're going to have to at some point reconsider our position on Zach Taylor is he good enough or not? If he wins the Super Bowl, well, then, you know, you got to tip your hat to him and say that you probably are at a high level coaching. Yeah. It's complete fiction in my mind, but I'm like imagining at halftime when Lou Anarumo kind of like brought this plan for like how to, to, to adjust in the second half of the Chiefs. And I just imagine Zach Taylor going, you do you, Lou. You do you. <laughs> Whereas Sean McVay in a same situation would be like, oh, tell me more. Tell me how I can understand this and break this down so then I could defeat this defense. Like, dude, it's halftime. We only have like 10 minutes. You, you can't get into yeah. this bullshit. Or, like, or, right or he would just be like, no, no, my plan will work. We just need to stick to it. Like, don't yeah. try and shift my plan. I've also realized I'm, not, I'm now all in on Zach Taylor. I also realize we just call him Coach Taylor. And then once you think that it's, you know, Kyle Chandler <laughs> doing it, it all makes so much more sense. And it's why they're making these adjustments. And they're like, they figured out, you know, all they need to do is make these kids believe in themselves it's great okay so the coaching we're saying mcveigh for prep taylor for adjustment in game let's look at some of the other elements that might affect this kicker battle right so we've got two top end kickers here if this is a close game and like let's be honest a number of these games have come down to the fact that they've been able to have these points banked like even in the comeback against the chiefs that was an awful lot to do with mcfearless the bengals kicker mcpherson doing his job and matt gay's been having a very good season for 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 la as well so this is a tight one like at the moment i'm kind of going on playoff form and i'm just kind of back in the Bengals kicker but to be honest these are two kickers that I'd have a lot of faith in I mean kickers do matter in Super Bowls I think yeah, that's important huge. to highlight I mean the Pats won two Super Bowls off the basis of how good Anna Finitieri was as a kicker like McPherson's on, been on incredible form and he's got he's got the confidence of someone who doesn't know his, his own his own limits he's got that kind of young person I don't have not met any real setback in my life and therefore I believe I can do anything which is exactly what you need in a kicker in a high pressure situation you know there are certain game scenarios where it could come down to a 
last second kick and you know McPherson's in that spot and even if it's 55 yards you're, you're backing the kid all the way we denigrate kickers all you want but in the big games you know who do you call on to get those three points you need you call on the kicker and McPherson at, at least has proven himself capable of the big game scenarios and doing what needs to be done yeah and it's interesting because I think both these teams have been relatively conservative they haven't really been going for it obviously a huge trend this year was people going for a fourth down in kind of uh, kickable distances but I think in this situation they probably will rely on their kickers get those points on the board and yeah like McPherson has been completely uh, unmovable he's been just absolutely money throughout the entire playoffs I think like 12 picks at this point Matt Gay has been a little bit more iffy during the postseason but he was being uh, very effective during the, the the regular season he got the Pro Bowl nod so yeah like I give advantage to McPherson here but I think it's interesting just to note that in a year where everyone kind of said fourth down go for aggressive you know guys like Brandon Staley going really really aggressive that you know, both these teams are kind of reverted in the playoffs to kind of just doing it the old-fashioned way, you know. Uh, we've got our halftime show, as we said, by a distance of in quite a while. Dre, Snoop, Eminem, Mary J. Blad, Kendrick Lamar. I'm looking forward to it, which is something I've not said for a couple of years on the halftime shows. Um, yeah, really, really pumped yeah. for that. It'll be distracting. Uh, uh, for old artists and then Kendrick for the kids. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I did love that meme, though, with Stafford at quarterback and Eminem at at the halftime show, this is the closest the Lions are ever going to get to to a Super Bowl. But, yeah, no, but, definitely, definitely an improvement on whatever was the weekend, whoever it was last year, it was really shit. Yeah, it was the weekend, and it was terrible. Kendrick is the one of those few people that you'd be like, if he does new stuff, you'll actually be like, fuck yes, please, yes. Like, the only one yeah. I can think of in recent history, like when uh, Beyonce went out there and did all the first stuff, that was pretty fucking brilliant at that mm. point as well. But yeah, I expect the other guys will bring in the classics and what a set of fucking classics it is like the great being uh <laughs> singing along after we've had about 10 pints it'll be phenomenal and then obviously the big one is who has supernatural powers on their side Hubbard has said that Cincinnati are doing this for Harambe in memory of the gorilla who was shot in the Cincinnati Zoo I've literally just spent the last five minutes googling most famous animals from LA or dead animals in LA and uh I can't I can't find what it is unless it's like kind of uh, Lord of the Rings all of the dead ones coming out in the them and it's basically everyone who died in the in the wildfires or something like that i don't think they have anything that's going to be able to help them like harambe would help them but apparently reddit getting these little factoids apparently there has been five super bowls between a predator and a herbivore and all times the herbivore has won so the bengals might be in trouble in the in the battle of the apex predators <laughs> and historic yeah. nfl records rams rams are a tough animal you know you don't know you don't want to be taking on a ram in a fight that's for sure yeah, I was going to say, like, if you, if you don't think that they're a predator, you haven't met a ram up close, like. <laughs> a ram would fucking eat you if it had a chance. Don't don't think- doubt that for a second. <laughs> I do think the hometown thing is interesting. It obviously helped the books last year as well. Just the kind of not having to change your, uh, you know, having to change your routine. You get to wake up at home. You get to work out at your home place. Gym it's and like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're completely in the rhythm, which I think will help the Rams an awful lot. But the converse of that is that the pressure of the LA, the LA media pressure cooker is going to be uh, at 99 in this one. So I think it balances out in terms of that. But definitely there is a factor there. And there's nothing you really do about it. But I mean, ideally, you don't want teams having hometown Super Bowls. Do you, do you worry that having to use the Chargers locker room and kind of having that side of the building will just make <laughs> sadness and loss rub onto the Cincinnati Bengals? Bengals are going to charge. Jesus. The one thing I would say is that like both these teams are fairly easy to like. Like there's some things you don't like. Like Stan Kroenke is the Rams owner. He's a bit of a prick, and like the Cincinnati Bengals owner is more, you know, useless rather than in any way offensive. Uh, yeah, overall they seem like uh, two interesting teams with an interesting story this year in terms of how they got to the Super Bowl. Like they haven't been like blowing everyone out 
we're getting two quarterbacks here that we both would like to see at Super Bowl. Like Joe Burrow, obviously, at the start of his career, is someone we're already very excited about. Matt Stafford's obviously someone who's been plugging away in the Detroit mines to get a chance like this. So I think it's going to be a really fun game and hard not to, hopefully, just a fun game to watch and, and enjoy. Very excited for it now. So you boys are coming up to, to Dublin and we're going to go out and, and watch it in town. It's going to be great crack. We're going to try and do a morning after podcast when we're all probably in, in, in the absolute horrors. We'll have a couple of guests coming on to that podcast as well. So, uh, some people who've probably been on the pod before, maybe some people who haven't been on the pod before. It'll be, uh, it'll be a good crack now, I'd say. But yeah, no, really looking forward to it. Should be uh, should be exciting time. So speaking of, is there anything else you guys are going to get up to for the rest of this week? Oh, sorry, just before we move on, are we sticking with the predictions for beforehand or has that in any way convinced any of you to change your predictions at all? No. I've made my case. I've made my bed. I have to know in it. As I said, I think it's going to be a close game, and I kind of just like Cincinnati a little more, so I give them the edge. Any, anything else you guys are going to get up to for the rest of the week? Obviously, you mentioned the uh, the rugby. Is that Saturday, isn't it? Saturday, yeah. The old uh, Ireland versus France. Uh, probably the two best teams in the Six Nations right yeah, now. France so are good again. Our Ireland will have their hands full there. And is your is the soccer back as well now after the FA Cup weekend or whatever? Yeah, yeah. So there's some midweek fixtures in the Premier League, and then I think some probably some weekend as well. The problem with the Premier League it's kind of over now because Man City are like a million points ahead. So okay, fair uh, enough. The real thing to watch for is will Newcastle get relegated, and we'll be watching Kylian Mbappe play Rotherham next year, which will be <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, as I said, I'm kind of playing a bit of D and D on Saturday, and uh, watching the rugby, and then obviously the uh, the the American football on Sunday so it should be a very exciting couple of days for the for the weekend but I suppose that'll do us for now so I suppose bye from myself bye from Roland bye bye from Sean bye it's been all four quarters thanks